The Lord is, is good to us. I haven't had much of an opportunity yet to see the campus. Um, I hope to do a little bit of that before we head on out. I want to thank you all again for the opportunity to be here and, um, <clears throat> and to share some of these things with you. I see our, our numbers are fewer. Um, I understand having taught on a college campus how busy things can be. And uh, <clears throat> when something's added, it's, it's just added. <laughs> There's nothing else taken away. And, uh, and it can be tiring. So I know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh needs sleep. <laughs> it's good to see you all. And I'm also glad that these things are recorded so you have an opportunity to, to look back on that. Um, <clears throat> We're going to continue here and we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to take a look at the judgment. <clears throat> and, um, you know, as, as Adventists, we, we, we believe in the judgment. We've we got to preach the judgment message. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and, and really, we know that it began on October 22, 1844, but beyond that, we don't know about exactly the operation. At least that was my experience. And so <clears throat> I hope that you will have a much better picture of that uh, after this morning. Um, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we kneel before you because you're our king. We need you to teach us, to help us, and we are dependent upon you for everything. Lord, I think of uh, the dear students and staff that are very tired this morning. <clears throat> Pray for a special blessing upon them, and for those who are on their way, uh, I pray you'll keep them from the slippery conditions, but Lord, I pray for a special blessing for this group here. Pray for a mighty outpouring of your spirit. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. And Lord, we invite your presence, not, not because we deserve it, we don't, but because we desperately need it and we request your presence. We know that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so, Lord, our eyes are to you. We pray also, Father, you'll be with the speaker, that he will not in any way uh, stand between you and the audience. <clears throat> and may it be Jesus that has seen, heard, and felt. And Lord, I pray that you will bring to my mind whatever it is that you would have me to present. And we, if there's any illustrations that are needed, I pray you'll provide them. Thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Just a quick review. We are learning that the uh, plan of salvation is revealed in the sanctuary <clears throat> and that the goal of the sanctuary, the plan of salvation, is to recreate in us the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true? And, um, and so the sanctuary reveals a daily experience with Christ wherein God works through that process uh, to conduct and this, this change in us. You know, <clears throat> the thing is, you, you really don't know my past. But, and maybe I, somewhere in here, I should have worked in a, 
a testimony. But, uh, but God pulled me out of the gutter of L.A. And, and I, I wrestled with this message because I know God promised it, and I didn't know how to get it. And I'm learning more and more. It's only found in the presence of Christ. Both the desire and the power for change. It's in that daily experience with him. And that's why I stress so hard the importance of that devotional life. It's, it's as optional for a Christian wanting to go to heaven as, it is, as breathing is for somebody who wants to be alive. It's not optional. Our devotional life, our time with Jesus, is absolutely vital. And really what we have been talking about here is the three angels' message this series, this weekend. It's the message that the world needs to hear about a God who has an answer to the sin problem. Not only will he forgive us our past, he'll give us the power to live for him today. And as we all share this message... The Bible refers to that as the loud cry that's going to take place at the end, the invitation to the world. Um, you have your handouts with you. <clears throat> I'm going to begin. Uh, we're going to do quite a bit of reading on this one. <clears throat> so let's take a look uh, at our introduction. In the study, we will learn the truth about the judgment. The truth about a final judgment is deeply rooted in the Bible. It is mentioned scores of times. Psalmists, prophets, and apostles all bear consistent testimony to it. Jesus also made many pointed references to the judgment. It marks the climax of some of his greatest parables. It is the focal point of much of his teaching. The Bible writers had a unique perspective on the judgment. They did not treat it as bad news, but as good news. They did not view it as something outside of the redemptive process, but part of that process. They saw the judgment as proof that God is a moral God, and that the universe has a moral base. They saw it as proof that history is not an aimless, undirected process. To the Bible writers, history was going somewhere. Therefore, they welcomed the judgment with eagerness and hope because it promised the ultimate exposure and condemnation of evil and the ultimate vindication and triumph of righteousness and truth. Can you say amen to that? Let's take a look at question number one. <clears throat> Can we be certain there will be a judgment? Uh, Acts 17, 31. Uh, God has appointed a what? A day when he will judge the world. And we know that uh, that's a prophecy that we find there in Daniel, Daniel 8, 14, 2300-day prophecy, and that that judgment began on October 22, 1844. So as you and I are meeting here this morning, the judgment is underway in heaven. Number two. How does Daniel describe the judgment scene when Jesus moves from the holy place to the most holy? Okay, so this event that took place on October 22, 1844. Watch the transition here. It's really interesting. Uh, these verses show a lot of, of action. Watch this. So I'm, I'm looking at Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, and 14. I watched till thrones were what? They're put in place. So what were they before? They were out of place. <laughs> They're put in place now. And the Ancient of Days is what? So evidently he wasn't before. Uh, his garment was white as snow, his hair was, uh, of his head was like pure wool, and the throne on his uh, fiery f uh, flame, it's what? what? What does the wheels imply? Movement, movable. A burning fire, 
fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was what? Okay, so it wasn't before that. And the books were what? They were closed before that. <clears throat> I was watching in the night season. And behold, one like the Son of Man doing what? Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. So we're watching here actually is the event of the transition of Christ's ministry from the holy into the most holy place. So they're moving into the most holy, and now they're setting up for the final phase of Christ's work. Number three, <clears throat> who will be brought into the judgment? 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must, how many? All appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, we're living in a time that really is sobering. It's a time that we need to be paying attention. I grew up in L.A., and it wasn't an uncommon thing to see a police officer as you're driving by. In my neighborhood, it wasn't uncommon anyway. See a couple of police officers showing up at somebody's door, knocking on the door, and the door opens. You can see them handing them a piece of paper. You knew what was happening. They were being subpoenaed. And... Um, but can you imagine how unnerving it would be <clears throat> if one day you heard a knock on your door and you open it and there's two big burly police officers and they ask you for your name and you say, yes, that's, that's me. And then they hand you a document and they just informed you that you have a day in court. Now, I don't know about you, but if that happened to me before the sun set that day, I'm going to find out what the charges are. I want to know what the charges are against me. And the second thing I want to know is uh, a good lawyer. Isn't that true? I mean, that would unnerve you. I have news for you, friends. You have all been subpoenaed. Every one of us have a day in court. We need to know what the charges are, and we need a lawyer. And we're going to find that God has provided himself a lawyer for us. He has. Let's take a look now. Now, I want to ask before I go any further, does everybody have a handout? Are there, do we have any extras? Does everyone have a handout? We have a need here for a handout. You can share together here. All right. Do we have any others? Maybe we can team up. You need one right here, Thomas? We got one? All right. If anyone else needs one, you can just raise your hand high. But sit near one, somebody that has, that has one. Okay. Number four, is that where I left you? Uh, which class will the judgment begin? First Peter 4.17. Uh, for the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So <laughs> Peter is basically saying here, you want to be part of the people that are investigated first because the other group is in big trouble. Do you get that in the text? For, judge, for the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So why does it begin in the house of God first? If you remember um, the Israelite example that the blood, that, that the sin of the Israelite was placed on the lamb, his life was taken... Then that blood was caught in the bowl and put in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, just, sig just signifying that the sin that was mine was then placed on the lamb, and then through the blood of the lamb, 
the record of that sin was placed in the tabernacle. When you and I give our lives to Jesus Christ, our sin is transferred to Jesus. And when Jesus, uh, who's in the most holy place for us, the record of that sin is placed there. And next to that sin is the word pardon. But it's still on our books. And it will be removed on the Day of Atonement when due to, in the investigation it is viewed that we maintained our commitment to Christ, that, it, that, it, that we really loved Jesus and allowed him to be the Lord of our life, that we're safe to save. And then those sins then are placed on Azazel. That makes sense? Um, <clears throat> so, so, getting, so being part of the investigative judgment is actually a good thing. Um, but what about those um, who, who do not enter into this experience? Let's open our Bibles to the book of John, chapter 3. <clears throat> We're going to look at a text that's very familiar to us. And, and then... Um, John chapter 3, and we're going to begin with verse 16, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Can you say amen to that? but that the world through him might be saved. This is why he didn't come to condemn the world. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned what? Already, because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When we sin, we're corrupt. When we become sinners, we're corrupt. Nothing good can come out of us. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I have zero hope. Amen. There is no hope in us. Without Christ, you and I are not capable of doing anything good for the right reasons. I want to illustrate this point for you. <clears throat> I don't know if you are familiar. If you've had a surgery, this might make sense. I don't know. But... I want you to pretend we're, we're in a, surgery, a surgical room <clears throat> and there's a table and there's cloth and there's instruments, okay, for surgery. All right, when I peel back the cloth, what is this area where the instruments now, what's this area called? Does anyone know? It's called a sterile field, right? And this is extremely important. My mom actually was in, worked at a hospital. She was one of the, she, it was her job to sterilize those instruments. Because uh, an infection will, can kill a patient. That, that is the most dangerous thing in a surgery, right? So you have the sterile field, all right? Now, I drop it at the, in the OR room. Is there such a thing as a 30-second rule? No. <laughs> there isn't, is there? All right, now, can I use this instrument? Why? All right, now think. But audience, can't it still perform? But what's the problem with the performance? It's contaminated. 
So the fact that it can perform is now irrelevant. Because even though it can cut right and well, it's contaminated. And so the same holds for you and I. Because of sin, our right performance is meaningless. Because our motives, we can't produce the motive that will make that performance acceptable to God. On our own, it's impossible. And, and until we get that, we're going to continue to look to our works. We've got to look to His and what God can do in us. Let's continue. Number five, who is the prosecuting attorney? Revelation 12, 9, and 10. The great dragon called the devil and Satan the accuser of the brethren. You know, <clears throat> I used to have, I guess it was because of my Catholic background, but I had a real dysfunctional picture of, of the Godhead. Um, I had this picture that, that God was this, was this being who was watching to see when and where I did something wrong so that he can let me have it. So God the Father was this big heavy. And so Jesus was, this, was the nicer one, and, and he cared for me, and he would stand between me and the Father and say, no, not this one, you know. That was the picture I had, that God was the big accuser. Wait, did you see what he did? Jesus, get out of the way and let me at him. That was the picture I had of God. And I don't know if I'm the only one in the room that has had this picture, but I hope to change that picture. And the I, uh, first text I want to go through, and we can do it together, we just read it, is John 3.16. Okay, let's do it together again. For God so loved the world that he took an awful risk to save you. The Father is not the big heavy. He sent his Son. He emptied the treasury of heaven for its greatest gift, of its greatest gift to save you. There was nothing left to give. Everything was in Christ to save you and me. God is not trying to find a way to keep us out of heaven. The Father is not. Let's look at another text. Um, John 16. John 16. If you're there, say amen. All right, I'll give you a little bit more time. Okay. John 16, and I'm going to read verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. What do you think of that? The Father himself loves you. He's, he's not the big heavy, trying to find a way to keep us out. Let's look at another one. Luke, chapter 12. <clears throat> Luke 12, and I am going to read verse 32. And, you know, the thing that amazes me as I look at some of these verses, I read them, is the tenderness of God really comes through. But Luke 12, verse 32, Do not fear, little flock, 
for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that precious? God is not the big heavy. He's not the accuser. It's the devil that is. It's not God the Father. Who? Okay, number six. Who is the defense attorney? 1 John 2.21, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have a what? An advocate, which means a lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So you just got subpoenaed. And you find out that your, your lawyer is your brother. Are you liking that? You know, do you think that maybe he's really going to stand up for you in the judgment? He's your brother. Y'all don't sound excited. That's amazing to me. Okay, it gets better. Let's take a look at number seven. Who's the judge? John 5, 22. For the father judges who? Stop. What did you just say? The father judges no one. That was in your Bible. Did you know that? The father judges no one. But has committed how much judgment? All judgment to the Son. Very interesting. If you want uh, more verses, I put some more references there. If you want to look it up, that's not a unique text. Acts 17.31 brings this out. Acts 10.40-43 brings it out. John 5.27 brings it out. Uh, and then in Volume 9, Testimonies 185.4 and uh, Volume 6, uh, Bible Commentary, page 111.6, uh, Ellen White brings out why. <clears throat> you know, it's really interesting, uh, in the great controversy in the chapter entitled, um, it's the one on the investigative judgment, life record, facing life's record. In the opening page, she refers to the father's presence there as the judge as the presiding judge. That's the word she uses, presiding judge. And if you look that up, you can Google it, it's in reference to uh, the head judge when there's more than one judge present, but the other judge is, is taking the lead. So Jesus is the, is the acting judge, but the father is present as the presiding. He is the, 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 the top judge. Does that make sense? And Sister White brings out the fact that the reason why Jesus... Is, um, is allowed to do this is because he entered into your and my experience. He infused himself into the human family. Do you, do you, do you, that doesn't really impact, I don't know, maybe it's me. I, that stuff just blows my mind. That God would do that. That he would enter into his creation because it was the only way to save it. You know, it's really interesting in the old days, when I, in the old days, uh, when I talk about um, the medieval days, I guess let's let's use that. When when there were two nations that were on the verge of war, in an effort to have peace, the king of one nation would give its child to the other to ensure peace, and that's what took place in Bethlehem. God sent His Son with the message of peace between he and I, between us and him. Isn't that precious? Absolutely precious. And so the Father, and I'm going to ask a question, are you afraid of the Father and the judgment? No. But we are going to find out in a moment what we are to be afraid of. It's not him.
<clears throat> Number eight, our study of the Bible revealed three phases to the judgment. Phase one is the investiga uh, investigation of the righteous. And what's going to take place is it's going to, what's going to be ju judged and, and reviewed was our daily experience with God. Did we leave him on the throne of our heart and we remain uh, crucifying self? Was that our experience each day with Jesus? Is this making sense? So in the investigative judgment, that's, that's what's going to be reviewed. Um, and so if found not guilty, they're acquitted. They're set free. That's John 5, 24. But if found guilty, then they proceed to phase two and three. In other words, if they chose another master, we're always free to choose another master. And phase two is the sentencing phase of the wicked. And this is what we Adventists refer to as the thousand years, the millennium. That's what will be taking place, the sentencing stage. Then phase three is the executive portion of the, of the sentence, and that is the final eradication of sin and sinners. Number nine, what are the books talked about in Daniel 7, 10? Well, the first is the book of iniquity. Jeremiah 22, 2 says, Your iniquity was marked before me, says the Lord God. So all of our sins are recorded. All of them. <clears throat> Then there's a book of remembrance, Malachi 3.16. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear God and for those who meditate on his name. So if God is in my mind, it's going to be revealed in my actions. Does that make sense? And those actions are going to be good actions, and they will be recorded. Then there's the book of life, Revelation 3.5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And uh, so there's an investigation to see. Well, first of all, I want to ask, how many here have given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, so all of your names are written in the book of life. All of us. Now the key is, is to keep it there. That's so important. <clears throat> Number 10. What is the standard by which all will be judged? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. So the law in written form and the law in living form, Jesus Christ, is our standard. That's why, brothers and sisters, it is a deception of the devil for you and I to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. Do not fall into that trap. You know, we're, we're told that when the crisis hits us, the majority are going to forsake us. And if we were focused on a human being, the likelihood is we're going to follow them right out the door. Be focused on Jesus. That's the standard. Not, another, not the pastor, not the instructor. There's so many people I run into that leave the church because they're upset with somebody in the church. And I'm like, why don't you just look to Jesus? Anyway, <clears throat> I, I just can't understand that. I, I, I mean, if, you were, if the Titanic was sinking and you're on the lifeboat and you look over and go, that person looked at me bad. You're jumping in the water? Because you want to get it, because that person hurt your feelings? Does that make sense? Stay in the boat. Ah, okay. <clears throat> it makes sense if you're, on a if, you're, if you're on a lifeboat in the Titanic. For some reason, people can't make that connection when, about church. I can't figure that out, you know. But uh, where'd I leave you? 
Ecclesiastes? Yeah. yeah. So James uh, 2.12. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. All right? Uh, number 11. What will the judgment bring to light? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. For God will bring to work into judgment, including every what? Secret thing. <clears throat> so, in other words, every motive, right? Every motive will be brought into the judgment. You and I cannot judge one another now because we don't know what you're thinking. Hey, let's be honest. Half the time, we don't know what we're thinking. And now we're going to figure out what somebody else is thinking. And so we've got to leave that to the Lord. By the way, if we, you know, have you ever, you ever are tempted to say, I know what they're thinking? I won't ask for a show of hands. But do you realize that's actually blasphemy? That's a prerogative that belongs only to God. We do not know what they're thinking. And we shouldn't uh, assume that we do. We don't. Uh, Matthew 12, 36 and 37 says that, what else? Every idol, what? That's a heavy one. I don't know about you, but I need the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Number 12, what is Jesus seeking to accomplish in his followers? The church through the judgment process, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so these are uh, sanctuary term terms that are referring to sin. Okay? So all of that out of the way. No more rebellion. Number 13. What happens if a sin remains in the books unrepented of and unforsaken? Uh, Exodus 32:33 says, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Uh, Ezekiel 18:24 says, But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, he shall die. So, so what are you saying, Pastor? Well, not me, but the task is basically saying that at the end of the, of the investigative process, if it is shown that I, I reneged on my commitment to Christ, that I, I, I ended up serving a different master, um, that, that my name will be removed from the book of, of life, but all my good deeds will be removed from the book of remembrance. Now, when I first read that, I was a little bothered. And I said, wait a second. I have a question. Those are my good deeds. Why are you taking them off? I'll tell you why. Apart from Christ, you and I are corrupt. We are not capable of doing the right thing for the right reason. It is an impossibility. However, in allowing Jesus into my life and asking him to transform me, as I spend time with him in his word, meditating upon his life, the Holy Spirit begins the process of transforming my life. And now I can do the right thing for the right reasons, but it's because of Christ. So when I do the right thing for the right reasons, is there something for me to brag about? That is why when we get to heaven, we will take our crowns off and lay them at his feet. Amen. 
Does that make sense? So it is a right for him to take it off the book of remembrance because they were his to begin with. Does that make sense? You know, remember that we read in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's what gets in the books. Make sense? When we yield our lives. Y'all don't look excited. Is this making sense to you? All right. I know some of you are Latin. Come on now. Number 14. <clears throat> what if I have repented of my sin and have turned from it and by faith have claimed the blood of Jesus as my atoning sacrifice? Will my sin be blotted out and my name remain in the books? Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Can you say amen? amen. Number 15. While the investigative judgment is taking place, what is my part? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So you remember that during the, uh, the investigative judgment, excuse me, during the Day of Atonement, what was Israel doing outside? Yeah, they were afflicting their own souls. Isn't that true? They were, they, were, they, were, they were making sure that everything was right between their soul and their Savior. Well, that was the antitypical activity. And so today, as the investigative judgment is going on in heaven, God is saying, hey, search your own heart. Make sure everything's good between you and me. Is that true? We ask God. We invite him into that, um, that process. But I'll share something with you here. I have found that as I spend time with Jesus and I meditate upon his life, that in the process of looking to him, suddenly I begin to see what's wrong in my own. So what I'm saying is, don't navel gaze. Don't be so focused on yourself. That's not what God wants you to do. Focus on Him. Does this make sense? And in the process, you will see. I mean, you know, if we turned everything else in this, light, in this room light, lights off and just let the one on, as we draw closer to the light, we become more aware of what our clothes look like. Isn't that right? As we draw closer to the light. And so as we draw closer to Jesus, we become more aware. But we are supposed to be comparing His life to ours to make sure things are good. Now, uh, take a look at the quote right below that, the note below 15. We must search our own hearts and lives by comparing ourselves with Jesus and his law. We're not irrevocably locked into salvation by one initial isolated act of believing. We are called to continue in Jesus. There must be a sustained, persevering co uh, commitment to him, a continuous personal union with Christ, and this is accomplished by choosing him as our Lord and Savior how often? Daily. Isn't that right? Let's continue. Consider, if we understand the key importance of the power of choice in our day-to-day -day lives, we will have no difficulty understanding the operation of the pre-advent judgment. So what we're going to do now is that we're going to combine our understanding of of, of the gospel, of what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross, and we're going to now combine it with the mechanism of the judgment, and now the operation will make sense. And the key component is our will, the freedom of choice. <clears throat> Number one, 
Our initial choice to receive Christ by faith puts us in Christ at the moment of our initial commitment. Jesus gives us the legal right to live forever with him. Can you say amen? That is the outer court experience. That's what we refer to as justification. At the moment I ask Jesus into my life, at that moment, you are a child of God. You are royalty. No games. At that moment, Jesus issues a command for your crown to be made. There is a crown waiting for you, and the devil is going to do everything he can to see to it you don't get it. But the command comes goes forth. You are now a child of the Almighty. Number two and three is the holy place experience. Number two. <clears throat> Our sustained habitual faith choices to keep, uh, to keep on receiving him keeps us in Christ in a state of perfect what? Security. As long as we remain within his will. Number three. Co uh, consciously and deliberately, we must renew our surrender to Jesus control, which is a voluntary control, on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. This is what the Bible means by abiding in Him, continuing in the faith, enduring unto the end, keeping ourselves in the love of God, and holding fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. So, <clears throat> I talked about this already, but perfection is merely surrendering to God's revealed will. Whatever his will is for you is yielding to that. Does that is that a scary is does, does perfection sound scary now? No. It's just surrendering to his revealed will for you. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of nutty for him to ask you to do something he hasn't told you to do? I mean, would wouldn't it be crazy to judge you for something he didn't tell you to do? <laughs> but Lord, you didn't tell me. How did I know? God's reasonable. Amen. He's reasonable. Okay. <clears throat> Staying within his will. Sweetheart, can you, is it okay if I, now, now they'll be staring at you. Can I use you as a, a guinea pig here for a moment? I'd like for you to hold this umbrella and then just stand right here. That's okay, you can face them too. All right, I want you to imagine that, um, that rain is sin, okay? And I'm out here. And I am soaked in sin. I want victory over wetness. And uh, my friend Jesus invites me to walk with him. So I go with my friend Jesus, and, uh, and my friend Jesus begins walking. And I am going with Jesus. Now, after a while, I begin to notice something. Okay, stop right there. After a while, I begin to know something as I'm walking with him. What do I notice? I'm becoming dry. Isn't that interesting? And, and pretty soon, I have, I'm, I'm completely dry. I have victory. Okay? And then I go, thank you, Jesus, so much. I appreciate it right there. Please understand something. Victory is never something that Jesus gives apart from himself. Amen. Jesus Christ is my victory. And I only have victory as long as I'm walking with Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus pulled me out of the gutter of L.A. My life was a life of sin. But if I stop walking with Jesus, everything I was, I will become again and worse. 
You with me? So, so the key for me to, to remain victorious is to go wherever Jesus leads. Now, go ahead and keep walking. Now, notice for a moment who's holding the umbrella. It's not me. It's him. So I, I'm like, I, I think I want to go that way, Jesus. But he's going this way. So if I want to remain under the umbrella, i got to say goodbye to that and stay with him. Amen. Th- does that make sense? Thank you, sweetheart. And so... <clears throat> I can honestly say that about 90% of the places God has called me to move to, I have not wanted to go. I can say that about 90% of the things he's asked me to do, I have not wanted to do. But I can also bear witness that in all those things, he blessed me. It was worth it, all of it. God actually knows what he's doing. We actually don't know what we're doing. And so, so it is safe. So, so perfection is yielding ourselves to Christ's lordship in our lives. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Do you remember the story of Lazarus in recording Desire of Ages? <clears throat> How Jesus was called to, to go to Bethany because Lazarus was in bad shape and he looked like he was going to die. Do you remember? You know that story? Does anybody remember? Jesus doesn't go. Does anybody remember what Ellen White had to say about that? She says that if he had gone, death would have had no power over Lazarus. He had to stay away. In his presence, death would have had no power. The reason why we struggle with sin is we disconnect from Christ. The, the victory is Jesus. <laughs> he doesn't hand him out. He's it. And we need to go to him daily. I remember a fellow, I was uh, talking along this subject. It was a, a massive prayer meeting we were having at a home. Uh, there was a bunch of people there. It was amazing. And, um, and this man, he was, uh, he was uh, a member of a nearby church, Adventist church. And he pulls me aside later uh, after the, the meeting. And he says to me, Pastor, I am struggling. I said, what's going on? He says, I'm struggling with pornography. I've been struggling for 12 years. And uh, so what question would you have asked? I, the first question out of my mouth was, how's your devotional life? He said, um, it's been sporadic. And I said, and didn't you use that same word to describe to me your victories? Your struggle has been sporadic. Your victories were sporadic. And your devotional life has been sporadic. I'm not a mathematician, brother. But are you starting to, to put the pieces together? I said, this is what you're going to do. I said, you're going to go home and you're going to take all of the physical uh, actions you can take. Get your laptops, computers, and I'll have them all face the room. Don't put any laptop facing, because he had to. I guess it was the type of work he had. Otherwise, I told him, get rid of the thing. Or at least put on all the different, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, blocks that you can on there. Th- these are physical things you can do. And then have the computers face the room so anybody can see what you're watching. I said, so these are the physical things you can do. And then I said, get the book Desire of Ages and, and, and start reading it. Meditate on what you read it and ask God, cry out. Get rid of any, of any access points these things have, but that in itself won't give you victory. But you still have to take those steps. But now you've got to spend it with Christ. Keep a Bible with you. When the temptation comes, cry out to Jesus. Get, anyway, 
I saw the guy a year later, actually, in a camp meeting, and I thought, hey, I wonder how things are going. So we were in a book center, and there was a lot of people there, and I, and I looked at him, and I said, how's it going? And he went, Amen. praise God. Jesus Christ is our victory. I want to show you something here that <clears throat> in the sanctuary. Oops, I grabbed the wrong pen. I want to get in the way of the camera. All right. <clears throat> so this is us. By the way, I saw the, the paintings from the elementary kids that was in the, I guess it was that room. Have you all seen those paintings? They're like master artists. I draw stick people. Anyway, I, I was like blown away watching the art of these kids. If you haven't done so, go see that. That is amazing. Anyway, so here's the sanctuary. Okay, the curtain is Jesus. I come to Jesus each morning. Amen. We're going to do the daily. You ready? Don't miss this. Okay. Each morning I come to Jesus, and if there's any sin, I'm confessing my sin to Jesus. Amen? Each morning I am committing my life to him, and I, I recommit those areas in my life. Each morning I ask Jesus to fill me with the Holy Spirit so I have power to obey. Then I go uh, to the table of showbread, to his word, and and and. That's where I am fed spiritually. Now, in the process of doing that, suddenly God makes me aware, the Holy Spirit makes me aware of something that I did wrong. Okay, maybe somebody let me borrow their, their rake two years ago and I'm still borrowing it. And I need to give that back. But God makes me aware of the sin. What do I do at that moment? At that moment, I come back out here. Yes? And I ask God to forgive me for that. Then I rededicate my life. And then I ask God to fill me with his spirit, give me victory over that, okay? Now this is what I want to point out to you. <clears throat> What's this? The That's the courtyard, but what's this? Okay, it's, it's, it's a curtain, isn't it? What was the curtain made out of? White linen. What was that a symbol of? The righteousness of Christ. While I'm in this process, I am covered by the righteousness of Christ. As long as I remain in this process, I am covered. Now, if I choose not to repent, if I excuse my sin, justify it, then I leave the process. And because the righteousness of Christ was never given to cover practicing sin. Does that make sense? Amen. Number four. One factor, now here's the fear factor, you ready? Now we're going to hit the fear factor. This is the thing that, this is the, the, the fear point. One factor and one factor alone can jeopardize our security and take us out of Christ, and that is our own will. Our own decision to do things our way. So one element of risk remains, but that lies within ourselves. While no man or demon or circumstance can destroy our security in Jesus, we can destroy that security by carelessness or perversity or neglect. Isn't that true? Number five. Accordingly, when our individual cases are reviewed in the judgment... 
before Jesus comes to bring his reward with him, only one matter will need to be investigated. Did this man or woman continue to abide in Jesus? Remembering that an abiding relationship with Jesus is always manifested in a life of obedience to his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, right, we will keep. Number six, in the end, we pass judgment on ourselves. Did you catch that? And if you need a reference for that, try Desire of Ages, page 57. In the end, we pass judgment on ourselves. By the consistent quality of our personal day-to-day choices, we are now deciding or sealing our eternal destiny. A godly character is made up of the thousands of individual choices we are now making in response to the Holy Spirit's prompting. You know, it used to, it really blew my mind and saddened me the idea that when the crisis hits, the vast majority of, our, of, of the church is, is leaving. Then the Sunday keepers are going to come in and take their place. Am I right? And I used to say, how in the world can that happen? I'll tell you how. Right now, there are Sunday keepers out there, and they're living up to all the light they have. As they go through life, they're training their mind to say yes to God. God reveals something to them? Yes, Lord. God reveals something else to them? Yes, Lord. God shows us? Yes, Lord. And they're yielding. They're training their minds to say yes to him. To say yes to him. When the crisis hits, and accepting the Sabbath is a death sentence, at that, that moment, these dear people are going to stand up and say, Yes, Lord. They had learned to train their mind. The reason why the Adventists will be lost is because all along the way they were training their mind to say no. No. Isn't, isn't uh, veggie links and going to church on Sabbath enough, Lord? Isn't returning my tithe enough? I return my tithe. But they were saying no. They weren't allowing him to be the Lord of their life. And when the crisis comes, they're going to say no. Does this make sense? In the end, hear me, God closes no one's probation. Who closes my probation? We close our own. Either for salvation or for eternal ruin. That's our choice. <clears throat> Number seven, at no point... In time, either at conversion during our Christian lives or at the judgment, does God act arbitrarily to override or manipulate our power of choice? You know why? Because love cannot exist in an environment that isn't free. Love can never be ordered, commanded, manipulated, or controlled. Love cannot exist in that environment. So God is not the big manipulator in the sky. He is not a controller. He get, we are all free, brothers and sisters. The decision of heavens... Well, let me reread that. At no point, at no point in time, either at conversion during our, our Christian lives or at the judgment, does God act arbitrarily to override or manipulate our power of choice. The decisions of heaven's court are not arbitrary. It is our decision that determines the verdict. Heaven simply recognizes them. 
At the judgment, God takes note of the current quality of our commitment, our current orientation of heart and will, and places his seal of confirmation upon the lifestyle or character that we have consistently chosen. God's verdict in the judgment simply discloses and vindicates the quality and direction of our habitual personal choices. Does this make sense? So I want to ask a question. Is God to fear in the judgment? Who is it we should fear? It's ourselves. Summary. As free moral agents, we are the architects of our own destiny. Our decision all along the way are what count, not just those at the beginning. Acceptance of Jesus does not make us into robots. The salvation process is not automatic. Our initial commitment to him does not take away our power of choice. We are always free to choose another master. Accordingly, it is not God's future decisions at the judgment that we need to fear. It is our own decisions, the ones that we're making now, and they are under our control. Is God fair? The note. These considerations should not rob us of the quiet assurance that all Christians may have. They only protect us from the false assurance of resting comfortably in a relationship that has never existed or one that we have since lost. Number 16. When the investigative judgment is done, what verdict is reached? Revelation 22, 10-14 says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. Uh, let him be filthy who is... Uh, excuse me. Uh, okay, let me read that again. He who is unjust, let him be still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so that signals the close of probation. There's no one left to save. Jesus returns, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And then the note, the removal of sin from the sanctuary is the final act of the sanctuary service. Thus, when Jesus' work in the investigative judgment is done, the destiny of all will have been decided for life or death. Probation is ended. Jesus returns for his children. And the reunification takes place. And number 17, is Jesus able to secure my case before the heavenly court? Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How often? Daily. Daily. I hope that was a blessing for you, friends, that you got to see the operation of the judgment, how it works in our role. You know, <clears throat> there is more studies on this that I have done, but what's really amazed me in my study of the judgment are two things. Number one is God's transparency. He hides nothing. He, he leaves it all for anyone and everyone to see. The second thing that amazes me about God is how respectful he is of our freedom of choice. He is hands-off. He gives us that freedom. Our next presentation is going to be on why Jesus waits. The reason, the reason for the delay of the second coming. We're going to find out why he hasn't returned yet. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, I want to give the audience here an opportunity to make a decision while every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Friend, we have touched on a lot of things here. And I want to ask, 
Would you like Jesus to come into your life? And are you willing to turn your life over to him completely? Are you willing to trust him to be your savior, your attorney, your judge, and your friend? If you are, please raise your hand high. Amen. Lord, I ask for a rich blessing upon each and teach us each day more and more how to serve and to follow you, that you may shine through our lives like the illustration of the cup last night and people can see Jesus in us. We thank you for this and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.